Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Thanks so much to the praise band. I don't know if the praise band, youth band, middle-aged band, whatever you guys want to call yourselves. But thanks so much for the the music. Those hymns and songs are a wonderful outline to what I think I've been led to speak on this morning. And while I'm not speaking a lot about the Holy Spirit in what's uh, what I've got to speak on, he was at work in preparing that opening. I'm sure of it. Especially the last song. You wouldn't think that a Christmas song has much to do with what's going on in June. But pay attention and you'll find out. Now, just before we get started, this is Father's Day. And I want to wish everybody a happy Father's Day. Last May, when Kerry Gino spoke, he spoke during Mother's Day. And he started off with a list of things that you will never hear a mother say. Well, I thought, I could come up with a list of things that you will never hear a dad say, and it's easy because I am a dad. So here's my list. There are no particular order, but I'm sure some of these will ring true to all of those who are fathers or all of those who have fathers. Here's something you'll never hear a dad say to his daughter. What's that, sweetie? You say you don't have enough clothes to wear? Well, here, take the keys to my new car and my credit card. Go to the mall and buy whatever you want. And likewise to his son, you'll never hear a dad say, why do you want to go out and get a job for, son? I make lots of money for you to spend. (laughs) Here's one for all those do-it-yourself dads that you'll never hear them say, I don't think I should lift the hood of your car and try and figure out what's wrong with it on my own. I really think we should take it to a licensed mechanic and pay him to fix it. Here's one you should hear dads say, I think we should ask your mother before we try this. (laughs) And lastly, no son of mine is ever going to go through this life without a nose ring in their nose. You get in that car right now and we're taking you downtown to get you one. (laughs) You'll never hear that. But happy Father's Day to everybody. As it says up there, I've got John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. An introduction, a prologue to what John was inspired to write. And let's read through that to start with. If you're uh, looking at the Brown Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1,645. If you've got your own Bible, I'll leave you to find your own page for that. But John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, 
This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. These first 18 verses are my favorite in the whole book of John. And I was thrilled to get these verses. In fact, when I opened up the email that had the speaker schedule, and I saw my name, Jim Malmick, beside the first 18 verses, I went, yes, I love this. And then I started preparing the sermon. And I went, ooh, there's a lot here to look into. But hopefully the Lord will bless us all as, as he blesses the speakers as we all prepare for uh, sermons that we stand up here to give. But the first 18 verses in the book of John is a prologue. It's an introduction to the book of John and its theme of who Jesus is and his mission here on earth. All four Gospels begin in a different way with introducing Jesus to us. Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Mark starts with prophecy and anticipation of Jesus through John the Baptist. Luke begins with the most detailed look at the birth of Jesus. And John, John dives right in with his prologue in establishing the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and his reason for coming to this earth. Now, the term word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. That term is translated from the Greek word logos. And logos in Greek was not only a word that was translated as speech or word, but it was also a common term during the time period that John was writing in. Logos was widely used in Greek philosophical teaching. Here's what I found as termed the long definition of the word logos. The Greek word logos, traditionally meaning word, thought, principle, or speech, has been used among both philosophers and theologians. In most of its usages, logos is marked by two main distinctions. The first dealing with human reason, the rationality in the human mind which seeks to attain universal understanding and harmony. The second with universal intelligence, the universal ruling force governing and revealing through the cosmos to humankind, i.e. the divine. That's a mouthful to try and say, let alone try and wrap your mind around. But here's a simplified version of it. Logos can be translated to mean word or speech, but it can also be translated to mean three main principles or ideas. One of them being understanding the universe and how it all fits together. Secondly, understanding who's in charge and who arranges the order of the universe. And thirdly, logos was also used as a term in Jewish wisdom literature. Jewish wisdom literature was a collection of writings and sayings that was used to impart well, wisdom upon those who read it. And some of that literature included some of the books of the Old Testament. Well, what does all this mean? Simply that there is more to the inspired introduction that John recorded than just a poetic way of linking Jesus to God the Father as part of the Trinity and creation and salvation. John was connecting with his readers on an intellectual level. And he was saying that here is a term that you are familiar with. And let me use it to show how Jesus answers the questions. Where did the universe come from? Who is in charge of it all? And how is it that this man was even wiser than Solomon? Fast forward today and what do we have? 
we have a description of Jesus and his connection with God as part of the Trinity, as well as Jesus' active role in creation. John wrote, In the beginning was Logos, and Logos was with God, and Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, the word Logos does translate into word. And today we have, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. More than 2,000 years later, that which would have made perfect sense to even the most intellectual person in John's day, translates into beautiful, simple prose that we can all understand even today in 2016. I love the way the beginning of John links together with Genesis, where in the beginning, God spoke and the universe began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When God created, when you look at Genesis, each time he created something, he spoke. Verse 3 starts off, and God says. Verse 6 starts off, and God says. Verse 9, and God says. Verse 14, and God says. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Every time God created, he spoke and it came to be. Jesus, who John described as the Word, was the one who made it so when God spoke. And now Jesus, who was and is God and was with God since before time began, had come into this world and in him was life, eternal life. And this Word, who was with God and now with mankind, would cast a light that would shine through the darkness that is the sin of mankind. But, but, but that which was his own, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the leaders of God's chosen people, either did not or chose not to recognize it. In speaking of Jesus, John chapter 1, as we just read, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Ever notice how light dispels darkness? Of course you have. Turn on a light in a dark room when you get up in the morning, and right away the darkness flees as the light comes on. That is, after you've had a few seconds for your eyes to get accustomed to that light. Though light dispels darkness, darkness cannot dispel light. You must take away light in order for darkness to occur. But you can't take away darkness in order for light to occur. Light has to leave the room before darkness shows up. But darkness doesn't have to flee before light comes. Light chases darkness away. Jesus came into the world as a light that dispels the darkness of sin. But everyone could not see that because some remained with their eyes closed, choosing not to cast their eyes upon the light. And in doing so, they remained in the darkness. But God sent a messenger whom he had chosen before he was born, whose message was to tell those who would listen to get ready because, as is said in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John the Baptist came to prepare the way in the hearts of the Israelites, and he baptized with water in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Jesus did not arrive unannounced. He didn't just pop up and say, here I am, pay attention to me. Though his conception was a miracle, his birth was natural, 
that his birth announcement was out of this world. Who among us fathers can say that our child's birth was announced by an angel of God with a host of angels praising God in the background to a group of strange men at night in a dark field? Or which of us dads can say that we hung a new star in the, a new star in the sky to mark the location of our son? The best I can do when Stephen was born was to take out an ad in the daily press. It kind of pales in comparison to what God did with the birth of his son. <clears throat> but it didn't stop there. Jesus' birth wasn't the only introduction that Jesus had. Just before Jesus was to start his ministry on earth, his cousin John began to prophesy, not to John who wrote the gospel we're into, but John the Baptist. And he testified that the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Though Jesus was already in the world, his time had not yet come to announce the new covenant that he was introduced. But he was about to change the nation of Israel and he was to shake it right down to its foundation. That's where the role of John the Baptist was so important that even before his birth, God had set aside John the Baptist for this mission. So much so that even before he was conceived, God told his parents, what you are to name him and how you are to raise him. John the Baptist was set apart even before he was born in order to prepare him to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist's life story is so extraordinary that if he were around today, TV producers would probably be calling him Johnny Baptist and they'd be trying to make a TV reality show out of him. In John's Gospel, he jumps right into Jesus as an adult, arriving on the world stage, so to speak, ready to identify himself as God's Son, the Messiah. And this prologue or introduction that the first 18 verses looks at establishes Jesus' deity as being God, his power through his active role in creation, and what he came to offer mankind that is the right to become children of God. It's an important distinction to make between right and privilege. And looking at verses 12 and 13 in John chapter 1. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. A privilege is something that's granted to you that can be taken away at the will or the whim of the one who granted it to you. But when you have a right to something, that is your right. Nobody can legally take it away from you. John is confirming that when you believe in Jesus and receive him, you now have a rightful place in God's family. And as it says elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus goes on ahead to prepare a place for you in God's mansion. And I picture in my mind exactly what my room looks like in that mansion. And it don't need no renovation work. As much as I enjoy doing what I do, when I get there, all I'm going to have time to do is praise and worship God. Verse 14 says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. There's that word again. Logos became flesh and He dwelt among us. The Bible records instances of angels sent on missions from God appearing to people in human form. A very good one is found in Joshua chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. 
Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does the Lord have for his servant? See, there's an example of God sending an angel in the form of man. But John states in his introduction to his gospel that Jesus, or the Word, became flesh. He didn't just take on the form or image of a man. He became one of us. In doing so, he endured and he experienced everything it is to be human. Everything except for one. The Bible says that in Jesus there was no sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 states, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He was tempted, as it states in the other Gospels, and in Hebrews, the author states that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, and he suffered when he was tempted, but he overcame temptation and he remained free of sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We are born with sin in our genes. It's in our DNA. When Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the fruit of the tree that God told them you must not eat of, not only did they leave us with a legacy and the consequences of what they did, But they handed down from generation to generation sin. That is, each new generation, including to today, we are born with the predisposition to sin. One person has a certain predisposition towards this sin. Another person may have a predisposition towards another sin or sins. I believe that science in isolating certain genes and how they affect us has merely put a name on what we inherited from Adam and Eve. If the medical profession isolates a gene and says it predisposes or contributes to someone suffering from alcoholism, medical science has simply put a name on what Satan will use to tempt us with. Satan's not stupid. He won't tempt us with something we can't be tempted with. If a person hates the taste of alcohol, and what's nothing to do with it, he's not going to tempt them. But if that person has a predisposition towards alcohol becoming an addiction, you can bet that that person is going to be tempted by Satan. I can be way out, way out in left field with this opinion. I mean, there's also the opinion that uh, our um, sin nature is inherited spiritually. But I give you my opinion for the following reason and question. When the Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us, did Jesus also come with a predisposition towards sin as we all are as human beings? In other words, did Jesus, being fully human, have a sin nature as we do? That's a tough one. That's where I started going, ooh, when I was preparing for the sermon. See, while the Bible has references expressing that in Jesus there was no sin, or sin could not be found in Him, I have not found any verses that definitively state that Jesus could not have chosen to change the rocks into bread when Satan tempted him. He overcame those temptations, and as such, he never sinned. But if the possibility was not there, would Satan have even tried to tempt him? There's another tough question. 
through the Bible as a whole, I lean towards the opinion that Jesus would never allow himself to succumb to sin's temptation because while he was fully human, he was still fully God. And that's a big deciding factor. And as such, he detests sin so much that he wants nothing to do with it. He wants nothing to be a part of it. I'll leave that question with you to dig into further. That's your homework. I'm not concrete on my answer to that question, and I would love to hear your opinions on it. But why did Jesus, why? Why did Jesus go all the way and become fully human, even though he remained fully God? Why didn't he just come and visit us as the angels do, or did, in human likeness? What was he able to accomplish as one of us that we would not have been able to grasp otherwise? The answer to that is found again in the book of Hebrews. This time Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a story that I read a long time ago. I think I shared it once a long time ago, but I'll share it again. That expresses very beautifully why Jesus came to earth. See, there was a farmer, and it was uh, a cold winter's night, and this farmer was sitting in his living room beside his fire. The fire was roaring, he was warm, he was enjoying it. When all of a sudden he looked out to the window, and he saw a bird sitting on the ledge, looking in, almost longingly looking at the warmth of the fire. And the man had pity on the bird, and he said, I don't know what I'll do, I'll just go open the barn door. It's cold, it's stormy out tonight, uh, the bird can fly into the barn and, uh, and he can be comfortable in there for the night. So he put on his, his clothes and he went out and he opened up the door to the barn and he went back into his house. But the bird came and sat again, perched on the ledge of the window, looking in longingly at the fire and the warmth that was in that room. And the man said, I know what I'll do. I'll go out and I'll try and chase him into that. Surely he'll get the idea that there's comfort inside the barn. And try as he may, the bird just flew up into a tree and sat there. So the farmer went back into his house again, and then the bird came back and perched on the ledge, longingly looking in. The farmer said, I know, I'll just go lay a trail of breadcrumbs leading up to the barn door. The bird will follow them, he'll see the warmth and the comfort that's in the barn, and he'll go spend the night. It didn't work. The farmer laid the breadcrumbs, and he went back inside, and there the bird came and sat and perched. And the farmer said to himself, if only I can become a bird, I can tell that bird where he can find safety and comfort. And it was at that point that the farmer realized why Jesus had to come to earth as mankind, as a man, why he became flesh. Jesus did not come to this earth as one of us for his benefit. He didn't have to. He had no reason to on his own accord. He did it so that he would be one of us, and as one of us, we would better be able to grasp the new covenant that his father had sent him to implement. We're like that bird on the window sill, looking in at the warmth. 
Only it's not glass that's separating us from God. It's sin, our sin. Remember, Jesus said, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The world already stood and stands condemned. The sentence has been handed out, but it's been stayed for a period of time to give us the opportunity to find forgiveness of our sins and a chance to accept the grace, the gift that is eternal life that Jesus came to offer. Jesus also said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus, as a great physician, came to heal mankind of a terminal disease called sin. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling upon us. Farther on in John chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. (coughs) People often use the first verse in John chapter 1 as proof for the deity of Jesus Christ and him being part of the Trinity, that he is part of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it works perfectly. But there's another verse in the opening prologue of John that also does the same thing. Verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Well, who is God the one and only at the Father's side? Jesus. God the one and only. God sent his son Jesus to earth as one of us that we might better understand the message of hope and salvation that is in the new covenant, that is in the church age that we now belong in. Jesus, Logos, the word, who was not only with God, but is God and took an active role in creation, loved his father and us so much so that he left his splendor of being beside God, his father. And he came to us to be one of us. How cool is that? How many earthly kings or queens would lead, would leave their lifestyle of privilege and royalty and splendor and go to live with their commoners so that they might have a better life, so that their subjects might enjoy a better life, let alone eternal life. To suffer with their subjects as one of their subjects so that the king or queen could say, look, I have lived with one of you as one of you. I understand what you go through. Everything you have endured, I have endured. I laughed as you laughed. I cried as you cried. I suffered as you suffered. Even the sting of death. And I have overcome it. Jesus is the only one to do that and the only one with the power to change. But we ourselves cannot change. John's introduction to his gospel record of Jesus lays out who Jesus is, the power he possesses, his reception when he came here as one of us, and the reason he was sent here. Next week we'll start looking at the details of what the prologue introduces introduces us to. And if you've never read or studied the book of John, you're in for an incredible ride of joy, of pain, of action, and of love. These first 18 verses are my favorite in the book of John, but they would mean nothing without the rest that follows. Do we have a closing hymn?
Nope. Then I'll close in prayer and uh, we can all go and enjoy the fellowship lunch at the other end. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in humble submission of who we are. We are human. You are God. But yet you chose to leave your Father's side. You came here, Jesus, as the Messiah to save us, to teach us, to show us, to love us, and to have compassion on us. How grateful we are that you would consider us worthy of all of that. Lord, we look to you We offer up to you our love, our joy. We offer up to you our sins and ask for your forgiveness. We repent and we stumble, Lord. We fall. But yet you welcome us home as the Father did the prodigal son again and again. And how wonderful is that? Father, thank you so much for making us a community, a church, a community of Christian believers that we can come together and not only collectively offer up our praises to you and our joy and our love to you, but we can look to each other, to each other's fellowship, friendship, and each other's leading and understanding that we have each other to, to lean on in times, that we can cry with each other, that we can be joyful with each other, that we can share in each other's experiences. Lord, you've planned it perfectly. You've implemented it perfectly. There is nothing more that we can add to what you have already given us And yet you continue to give it so abundantly. You bless us, Lord, time and time again. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. Help us, Lord, as we dig into your word to understand it, to apply it to our lives, to make it a part of our lives and make it burn within a side of us so strong that we cannot hold it with inside, that we would have to share it with those around us. So we pray for these things, Lord, and may we come back next week refreshed, Glad to be in your word and glad to be in your kingdom. We pray for these things in your name. Amen. Hey, Cameron, thanks for the opening. I think I have an answer. What's that? But you said, why didn't Jesus have I'm, sin? I'm looking. Sins of the Father are passed on to the